sharing. <coughs> uh, just so you know, um, when, when uh, Megan comes up with the team again and does uh, a couple more songs, the last song, which is entitled Fall Afresh. Um, it just will, we'll have, during that song, we're going to have a couple folks in the back, uh, Joe and Deb Boner, Daniel Lee, uh, Cheryl. And if anybody is just looking during that time to be prayed with, to be prayed for, please go back, seek one of them out. Um, if it's more than they can handle, uh, you know, again, someone else, get up, go pray with them. Um, so we just invite you during that last song, if anyone is, would uh, like to be prayed with or for, uh, go ahead to the back, grab somebody. You can step right out to the foyer, and we would love to pray with you. So we're going to be wrapping up our series in Romans uh, 12 this morning, the, the trans, what we'd be calling the series, The Transformed Life. And we'll be looking at verses 17 through 21. So when I come to Jesus, that, that first prayer, that first prayer, that very moment that I come to him in faith, in repentance, turning from who I was, turning from living as if I were my own God, and I recognize Jesus as my Savior, and I recognize Jesus as my Lord, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose victorious over the grave, that first prayer of faith, that initial moment, I am reconciled forever to God. I am reconciled by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This isn't just a matter of religion, of some uh, sort of kind of thing that's confined to some sort of Sunday morning a uh, religious box or a spiritual subcategory of my life. It's the birth of a completely new life that responds to everything in life in light of that new life. My entire life, we've learned as we walk through Romans 12, is to be lived out with God's mercy on me always in view moving me from inward change toward outward change, from inward transformation toward to outward transformation. Changing how I think, changing how I perceive the world, changing how I respond to all my relationships, how I respond to God now that I've been reconciled to him, how I respond to myself, that I can face myself and see myself clearly and not be afraid to do that, right? We learn that, that we can view ourselves in sober judgment. I can look at myself in a safe place now. And then, in turn, how I relate to everyone else. Uh, Paul has laid out in his foundational statement, in verse 9, how we're to engage all those relationships. That love, this, this agape love, this unconditional, self-sacrificing God love must be sincere. It must be genuine. And we talked about the fact that that's, that's opposite of hypocrisy, the opposite of play acting. This is true in my relationships with my new spiritual family. And it's true with all of those who are presently outside it. And I say presently because God is always the great inviter. And we are to join with him in that invitation to invite people to be adopted as we've been adopted. Brought from darkness to light, from death to 
to life. This morning's subject coincides with a theme that we touched on a couple of weeks ago, that sincere love must be, must be gracious toward opposition. Wishing those who treat us with contempt well for good to come their way and not harm. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Paul said of himself and, and his fellow apostles in 1 Corinthians 4, When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. So this morning we'll continue on in that spirit and, and we'll look at three interweaving encouragements. First, that we would give our opposition what they do not deserve. Secondly, that we would live as peacemakers. And lastly, that we are to overcome evil with good. Let's read Romans 12, 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So maybe I can begin by just asking this simple question. What is our typical response to opposition? Our typical response kind of our gut reaction to someone who would look to do us harm or to slander us or to gossip against us or to injure us or our kids or what, what's, what's our initial response? What, what's our knee-jerk reaction, if you will? To push back? I'm sorry? Defend? To be defensive, maybe? Retaliate? On, anything else? Real talk, right? What's that? Talk about it to others. Do you know what they did to me? Strike back. In this passage, we're giving we're given something that is uniquely Christian. That is uniquely. The way of Jesus. It, this, th that we would not only restrain from giving those who treat us badly what they deserve, that this, this principle of non-retaliation, but that we would actually give them, those who oppose us, what they do not deserve. It, it's the way of Old Testament Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery, 
removed from his family, but in the end, rescues those very brothers. It's the way of King David toward, before he was king, toward King Saul, as he showed him honor and respect and refused to injure him, even though David wanted to kill him. It's the way of David that when he does come and become king, that he would bring Saul's grandson, his lame grandson, to the royal table to always be dining with him. It's to do as Jesus said, to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It's to do as Jesus demonstrated. Even on the cross, even being able to look down at the literal human beings that had just nailed him to that cross, and he would pray for them even there, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's what Stephen modeled as he was being stoned, literally rocks thrown at him until he dies because he professed Christ and in his dying breath would say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who would do that? C.S. Lewis once wrote, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Isn't that true? But the Christian is not only called to forgive, the Christian is not only called not to retaliate, but to do what is right or honorable, it could be, could be said, or noble in the eyes of everyone. As the Wesleyan Way teaches, that we would first do no harm, but then we wouldn't just stop there, we would move forward to do good. Responding with a blessing and not a curse is hard enough. <laughs> Reality is, most of you have had situations like that even this past week. That someone has hurt you, someone has belittled you, someone has insulted you, someone has talked bad about you, and the re your gut reaction is to curse and the Lord says, bless. It's hard enough to do that. It's hard enough to, to pray for those who are doing us harm. But here we see that this blessing is not just in word, but it has to move to the place of action. The place of being willing to care for the needs of those who would do us wrong. The reality is we're tempted to be happy when those who oppose us have needs. Are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Maybe, we, maybe more to the point for us, are they failing? Are they hurting? It's easy for us in those places to want to celebrate. Ah, they're getting what they're due. It's where we would want to exploit them. But God calls us to the exact opposite. You may think this impossible. When we're insulted, we want to insult. When we're belittled, we want to belittle. When we're spoken against, we want to speak against. When we're wounded, we want to wound. 
not natural to restrain our defensiveness, not natural to restrain retribution. It's even less natural to do good to the very ones who would do us harm. That's why we need the supernatural. That's why we need the way of Jesus. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. I recently heard an astounding example of this. Uh, By now, most of you know that Courtney's husband, I have Courtney and her husband, Jimmy, this is their wedding day, that Courtney's husband, uh, Jimmy, lost his brother a little over a week ago in a vicious murder. His dearest brother, his dearest friend, his best man at his wedding, someone that was uh, involved deeply in the ministry of Ansem that we support here, someone that was ministering to his neighbors. A woman, and this is long story short, but a woman has been arrested under suspicion that she... uh, at least in part, took, took part in this brutal murder. Jimmy knew, <laughs> Jimmy knew that she had had no visitors, that no family even yet knew that she was in prison. So Jimmy goes to this woman, this woman that very well may have had part in the vicious, brutal murder of, her, of his brother, and he visits her, and he brings her food. And he, he looks to get someone to clean her cell because the, the, the prisons in Haiti are known to be horrid, and it smelled so badly of human excrement, he looked for someone to come and clean things up for her. I said, who does that? Someone who is following the way of Jesus does that. Someone who is living in view of God's mercy does that. Someone who is living by the power of the Holy Spirit does that. It's to run in the complete opposite direction of revenge. It's to realize that that to coddle thoughts of revenge may hurt those who have hurt me, but it also hurts me, trapping me in cycles of pain and bitterness. And it shows a distrust in a God that will make all things right. A couple paragraphs by a man named Lewis Smits. Your own memory is a replay of your hurt, a videotape within your soul that plays unending reruns of your old rendezvous with pain. You cannot switch it off. You're hooked into it like a pain junkie. You become addicted to your remembrance of pain past. You're lashed again each time your memory spins the tape. Is that fair to yourself? This wretched justice of not forgiving? Vengeance is a passion to get even. It's a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gave you. An eye for an eye, fairness. The problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. 
The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injured to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded, and the escalator never stops, never lets anyone off. Proverbs 20, 22 says, Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Commentator John Phillips says, Those who take revenge into their own hands are apt to pierce themselves through with many sorrows and find at last that vengeance is a bitter fruit. When God, and I love how he specifies the nature of God here. He says, when God avenges a wrong, he does so with perfect equity and justice, never in a spirit of retaliation, which so characterizes human schemes of vengeance. You know, sometimes we read these verses in Romans and we say, oh, I'll hold back because God's going to get them. And there again, we're missing the point. We're missing the very heart of God. N.T. Wright says, revenge keeps evil in circulation. By releasing the person and our desire for revenge, we deprive the evil act of its power to keep us in a bitter and twisted state. Now, before I move on, I just want to make a few quick side notes, and I could expound further, but for time's sake, I won't. For one, we're talking about personal wrongs here. We're not, we're not, this is not to say that if someone breaks the law, that they shouldn't be brought to justice. In fact, if you read on to chapter 13 in Romans, you'll see very much that, that, that Paul would say that that's the case. But that even there, as we see in the example of Jimmy, even as a woman potentially is being brought to justice, the call is still the same. The personal obligation is still the same. A love that leads to forgiveness a love that extends itself in what we might call unreasonable kindness. Another side note is I would say that this isn't to be taken as a call to stay in abusive situations. Even Jesus, when you read through the Gospels, many times moved away from dangerous situations because his time had not yet come. But it's a call that we would respond when we find ourselves in kind of unavoidable situations in which we are wronged. That we respond not in the flesh, but in the spirit and his character. And one other quick side note, what, what's this reference about heaping burning coals on somebody's head? There, there's actually a few possibilities, um, but what it's not, and I remember reading this as a kid and and maybe even as a young adult, and saying, wow, so if I do good, I get to burn somebody's head. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good deal. The idea, obviously, in the context is not that doing good is a way of getting revenge. That would be against the point of what Paul is saying. There was a, and Paul might be referring to this, there was actually an ancient uh, Egyptian practice that if someone was repentant, they were, if they were penitent, that they, would, that they would walk around with a pan of burning coals on their head. And it may very much be that Paul is saying that by you doing good to the wrongdoer, 
they might be convicted of their sin in such a way that they would turn, that they would repent. And in so doing, you would actually be doing them good by loving them that way, just as with us, right? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So dovetailing with this, this idea that we would not give wrongdoers what they deserve, but what they do not deserve, the Christ follower is also always to be an agent of peace, as far as it depends on you. Paul knows that as much as love might be a one-way street, peace between brothers is a two-way street. That's just like forgiveness may be a one-way street. If Bob has wronged me, I can forgive him. I'm called to forgive him, but reconciliation is a two-way street. But may it never be said that the one who professes Jesus as Lord and Savior is the one that stifles the pathway of peace, but rather encourages it, makes a way for it. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Why is that so? Because when we are peacemakers, we are acting in the nature of God and showing that we are his. James 3.18, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What is it to be a peacemaker? Well, for one, it's to refuse to posture yourself as an enemy. It's to refuse to posture yourself as an enemy. There's a farmer named Daoud Nassar that lives with his family in West Bethlehem. He's a Palestinian, but he's a Palestinian follower of Jesus Christ. He lives on a 100-acre farm that is incredibly valuable and incredibly coveted by the Israeli government. Dayud has been harassed many times. He has been threatened many times over. The government refuses to allow him to tie into uh, running water, to allow him to tie into the power grid so he would have electricity, even though the Israeli settlements that are right around him have, have all those things. He is not allowed to build things on his property. Now, this is property that is rightfully his, that has been in his family for a long, long time. He's not allowed to build any buildings on his property, so he and his family dwell in tents and in caves. I want to read just a little bit about Dayud. This is out of the book, The World is Not Ours to Save, Finding the Freedom to Do Good. If there were ever a situation where a man might be expected to pick up a gun, this would be it. But listen to the miracle of God's sovereign grace. On the last Palestinian hill in western Bethlehem, mere miles outside of the town where the Lord was born, is a spot where a conflict of global consequence attains a almost crystalline peculiarity lives Dayud Nassar, a Christian whose response to all that has befallen him and his family is, we refuse to be enemies. 
This motto, translated in English, Arabic, Hebrew, and German, emblazons large stones at the front gate. We refuse to be enemies. Welcoming every battle-weary visitor to a sanctuary from the pervasive stink of a conflict that seems all-consuming. The conflict has a ready scripted role for the Nassars to play, but they have declined their part and are writing a different story with their lives. Blessed are those who make peace, Jesus said, for they shall be hailed as children of God. At the tent of nation's farm, that's what he calls his farm, this theology takes on flesh. As Daoud is quick to point out, he is fed up with hearing theories about peace and how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should be resolved. So he has resolved to live it out in the present, the f- live out in the present the future resolution and reconciliation that he hopes for. I believe in small steps, Daoud says. In this conflict, there are, there's an expectation of how you'll react. When you act differently, it confuses people and changes the situation. That is why when the soldiers came and knocked down his gate, Dayud met them and asked what they wanted. They told him that they were to inspect the grounds. Then Dayud said, you are my guests. You are welcome here. So we must first have tea. It's almost impossible to overstate the imperative of hospitality in the Semitic cultures of both Israel and Palestine. During our travels to the region, we never stopped without being offered small cups of traditional tea or coffee, sweet, strong, and scalding hot, even among the very poor. So Daoud made the soldiers an offer that they quite literally could not refuse. It was the interpersonal version of a computer hack, slicing through the outer conflict that separated them and going straight to a shared cultural source code. The soldiers were confused at first, but found themselves sitting in spite of themselves. And in the act of sipping tea and talking, they were transformed from armed adversaries into guests. Their speech became respectful and as befitting guests. And after finishing tea, they left without further incident. Similarly, when the soldiers stopped Dayud's car in the middle of the night and forced him over his protests to pull his children from their sleep, he did not return anger for the insult. Instead, he spoke to his children in English, so which the soldiers understood as well, saying, Do not be afraid. These soldiers are people. They are young and frightened like you. They are human beings, too. So don't be scared. A change came over the soldiers, and they completed their search quickly. When they finished, their squad commander approached Daoud humbly and spoke to him as a fellow man rather than a suspected terrorist. I'm sorry that we did that. Please apologize to your children on my behalf. During our visit to the Tent of Nations, one of our group who pastored one of the most famous churches in the world gazed over the hilltop through eyes filled with tears. This is the clearest picture of the kingdom of God that I have ever seen. be a peacemaker is to not posture yourself as an enemy. It is to promote peace wherever and whenever possible. Peace with you and others. Peace between others. Peace between God and others.
It's sobering for me to wonder, are Christians understood as peacemakers in our culture? Is that the perception? That we are peacemakers? Sadly, too often the answer is no. Too often we've postured ourselves as enemies to all who disagree with us. Too often we're more concerned about retaining our weapons than we are loving our enemies. Too often we engage in needless quarrels and create conflict rather than seeking peace. And I think we would do well to learn from a Palestinian brother named Daoud Nassar. We refuse to be enemies. So who has offended you? Who has hurt you? Who has pitted themselves against you? Will you refuse to be their enemy? Will you forgive? Will you pray for? And if you have opportunity, pursue peace and even acts of kindness. Lastly, Paul sums up his theme with a charge that in it we see the very heart of the gospel, the way of God, the heart of God, displayed through Jesus to us who were God rebels, dead in our transgressions and sins, who were, as the scripture tells us, once God's enemies, pitted against him, that he would take us and turn us into his dearly loved children. What is that way? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea of overcome is to conquer, to, to be rendered helpless. So Paul's drawing this striking contrast. Do not allow evil to prevail over you, rendering you helpless. Instead, prevail over evil with active goodness, rendering evil helpless. If when I'm hurt, I curse. I set, a, I set myself on a path of revenge. Then I have, in fact, been overcome by evil and rendered myself helpless to do good. But when, if I, when I'm hurt, I instead bless. I instead set myself on a path of peace and engage in unreasonable acts of kindness, then I see good prevailing over evil. This is the way of the cross. That God used the very hate poured out on his son to display his utmost love that God used an instrument of torture and death to manifest a way that we may be forgiven and restored and given eternal life. I'll close with one more brief story. In 1996, a, a group of radical Islamics kidnapped several monks. 
these, uh, this group insisted that they would kill these monks if France did not release several of their imprisoned companions. France refused, and the monks all had their throats slit. One of these monks had a premonition that he would die at the hands of terrorists. And he wrote a letter concerning that future murder. A letter that even speaks to his future murderer. And he left it with his mother in France. And it was only opened after he was killed. I'll read a portion of that letter. He writes, if it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism that now seems to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family, to remember that my life was given to God and to Algeria, and that they accept that the sole master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I would like when the time comes to have a space of clearness that would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and my fellow human beings and at at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who will strike me down. I could not desire such a death. It seems to me important to state this. How could I rejoice if all Algerian people I love were indiscriminately accused of my murder. My death, obviously, will appear to confirm those who hastily judged me naive or idealistic. Let him tell us now what he thinks of it. But they all all should know that. For this life lost, I give thanks to God. In this thank you, which is said for everything in my life from now on, I certainly include you, my last-minute friend, who will not have known what you are doing. I commend you to the God in whose face I see in yours. And may we find each other happy good thieves in paradise, if it please God, the Father of us both. Who does that? A life transformed does that. A life that is determined not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. The Christian life is a transformed and ever-transforming life. Not just a nebulous spiritual ascent to some higher knowledge, but an on-the-ground real-life change. A life that is forever being renewed through the grace of God, the Lordship of Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. A life that's not stuck in patterns of meaningless religion, but a life that is lived in, the view of, in view of God's mercy, that is offered as a living sacrifice, a perpetual act of worship to the God who has first loved us. Amen? I'll welcome the team back up.